just this morning, one with my son and then another person, we were chatting just about the whole area of fear and anxiety. And uh, my word of encouragement to them was we all struggle with that if we're honest. We all struggle to fully trust that what Christ says that we can do all things through him, we struggle with that. And uh, one thing we got to keep reminding ourselves is that the strength is not in ourselves. But he will empower us when we lovingly obey his commands to either follow through with water baptism or to serve in some capacity in the church. And so that does make all the difference that you are a child of God. And I just want to encourage anyone who's here this morning and, and you see that line and you're not even sure what that means. We have been praying for you that God will speak to you and make it so clear to you so that you will understand how you can have the privilege of having peace with God and how you can experience the power of Christ in your life to overcome those fears and anxieties that you might have. And so our prayer is that today God will make himself known to you and you will receive the gift that we have received and in receiving the gift of his son Jesus Christ become a child of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that you have given us to be in your house this morning. It has been good to be reminded of who you are and your gracious acts towards us. God, I pray that now as we take this time in our worship service with you to read your word, I pray that you would speak to us clearly. God, I pray that you would challenge us. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would change the way we are living. It's only through you that that is possible. God, I just ask for your help. I pray, God, that nothing I say or do will get in the way of your message this morning. So, God, penetrate our hearts. And once again, thank you, Father, that we have the privilege to be called your children. And everyone said, amen. Today I want to talk to you about what we facilitate God will not tolerate. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open up to the book of Exodus chapter 20, and we are going to be looking at the first six verses this morning. What we facilitate, God will not tolerate. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20 in the book of Exodus, the Bible says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." Before we look deeper into God's Word this morning, I want to begin by throwing out a challenge to all of us. And the challenge is this, that this morning each one of us would be willing to confess to God the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth regarding the idols we all have in our lives. I want to challenge every one of us to be willing to confess to God this morning the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth regarding the idols that every one of us have in our lives. Now, I'm sure when you woke up this morning and came to church, you weren't thinking of yourself as an idolater. 
In fact, some of you right now might be thinking like Gary Coleman used to say on the TV sitcom, Different Strokes, Idols? What you talking about, Pastor Calvin? I don't have any carved images in my house that I bow down to or that I sing to or that I worship. I haven't traveled to any foreign country and as far as I know, brought back any representation of a false god into my house. So to confess the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth regarding the idols in my life actually shouldn't be that big of a deal. In fact, Pastor Calvin, the question I have, is the topic even relevant to me as a follower of Jesus Christ living in Durham Region in 2017? Is that topic even relevant to us living in Durham Region in 2017? Most of us, I'm sure, would probably deny that we are idol worshipers, probably because we think of it as something that only occurs in primitive countries, third world countries, primitive cultures. However, as one author correctly put it, its allure has become so sophisticated and subtle in our context where we live that we either dismiss it or we rationalize it or we even embrace it in ignorant bliss for lack of clear understanding and honest evaluation. Ed Stetzer, in an article entitled, Idolatry is Alive Today, Why Modern Church Leaders Fight the Same Old Battle, states this, Believe it or not, the most common warning about sin in Scripture does not deal with lying, does not deal with gossip, does not deal with adultery, does not deal with murder, no, The most common sin in all scripture that we're told to avoid, reject, and move move away from is idolatry. You see, idolatry is not a pagan issue. It's not just an Old Testament or a Jewish issue. It is a human issue. Idolatry is a human issue. And that is why it is relevant for all of us this morning to discuss this topic. None of us are exempt from having to come clean before the Lord our God and confess the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in regards to the idols that we have in our lives. You see, God is already fully aware of what we passionately pursue other than himself. And as it is stated in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, I say to each one of us this morning, brothers and sisters, let us not be deceived. God cannot be mocked, all of us need to confess and repent of our idols. So the question we want to answer this morning in our series is, what does modern idolatry look like? What does modern idolatry look like? And in thinking about how best to answer that question, believe it or not, phones came to my mind. And in particular, the way they have developed and changed since Alexander Graham Bell's first conversation on a phone back in 1876. Now, as a piece of trivia, do any of you know what the first conversation on the first phone invented actually was? You know? Okay, hold your answer. How many of you would think that the first conversation should be like, can you hear me? Wow, this really works. Don't you think that would make sense? Rodney, what was the first conversation he had to his assistant, Mr. Watson, that day? Correct. The first conversation on the first phone invented to his assistant, Mr. Watson, was this. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. 
bizarre. And as I was studying this week, and I actually read that on the internet, while I was studying that and I discovered that conversation that I didn't know, my two dear daughters on Wednesday were at home because they're not in day camp this week, and uh, they were watching their new DVD that they purchased while we were recently in Cincinnati at Walmart. And they were so excited to take a full day and watch their favorite DVD. And I'm so proud of them as my daughters because their favorite DVD they picked was the last season of Duck Dynasty. (laughs) Yes, I tell you no word of a lie. That is my daughter's for you. So while I'm, while I'm actually reading on Google, first conversation, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. In the background in the living room, I hear Cy from Duck Dynasty say, technology can make you lazy and dependent. No word of a lie, just like that. And I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right, Cy, because the first thing a guy asked was that someone to come and see him rather than go and talk to him. Incredible. The incredible changes in design and capabilities and the cost of phones from that first phone to the many different varieties of phones we have available to us today is remarkable. Yet through all the changes and the number of different phones available to us, there has always been an underlying common desire that has never changed since the invention of that first phone to today's models. And that desire is the longing we have as human beings to communicate with one another and stay connected. Even since that first conversation to the incredible variety of phones we have today, that one desire has always driven, underlying it all, a desire to communicate with someone else and to stay connected. So it is with idolatry. From its inception in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to make their desires more important than God's desires, all throughout history, across all cultures, right up to our modern time, idols similar to phones change and come in a variety of different forms. But there has always been one underlying common desire that we have as fallen human beings that has never changed since the Garden of Eden. And that desire, which is in with all of us, is to place our trust and to give our affections to someone or something other than God. Idols come in a variety of forms. They have changed over the years. But the underlying drive behind them, the desire to put our trust and affection in something or someone other than God has always been there. So in answering the question, what does modern-day idolatry look like? At the core, modern-day idolatry is no different than the idolatry we read of in the Scriptures. It is no different because, as Ed Stetzer correctly puts it, when it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in an item or the item's form. It is in us. It is in us. It is part of our fallen nature. We are hardwired to constantly be pursuing and desiring things other than our Creator, God. The famous theologian John Calvin described our hearts as an idol factory. Just think about that for a second. Every morning you and I wake up, we have a factory within us that is wanting to create and make idols. An idol factory. Idol worship starts in our hearts, craving, wanting, enjoying, and being satisfied by anything that we treasure more than God. 
It is that thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. You get the point. Whatever you fill that blank in is your idol. John Piper defines it very succinct. Anything that takes God's place in giving us fulfillment, satisfaction, security, and significance is an idol. Whatever we love more than God is an idol. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 summarizes idolatry. This most basic human sin that all of us are guilty of in one word, covetousness. Anything that we desire more than God in a wrong way. And it affects all of us. It was interesting, on Thursday afternoon, I got a phone call from a fellow pastor in another city. And I thought he was just phoning to catch up and see how things are going. But as the conversation went on, this pastor actually was confessing to me so that in the same way he could confess to God, he needed to share, I'm struggling with an idol in my life. And I went, wow, can I just rehearse what I've been studying with you on the phone this afternoon? And that's literally what I did. I just shared with him how God views idols and what our response should be. And there was three questions that I shared with him that I had read that I think all of us should run through our minds and our hearts to evaluate if we are pursuing something or someone other than God in a wrong way. And these are the three helpful questions which we discussed. What consumes my thoughts? What consumes my schedule? What consumes my treasure? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your schedule and what consumes your treasure is a great way to evaluate, God, am I pursuing something or someone other than you in a wrong way? I don't know if any of you on your journey as a follower of Jesus Christ have God very clearly shine his convicting light on you and make you aware of something in your life that you have made an idol or that I have made an idol. And I'll never forget that moment for me. It was in 1992. I was finishing off my sophomore year in university at West. My, I, I can honestly say I did not realize I had made pursuing to play in the World Cup of Rugby and to represent Canada as a god. I was working hard at it because you do everything to the glory of God. I was committed to it. I was passionate about it. And God was opening doors, so that's obviously affirmation that I'm in his will. Until I was left the sports medicine clinic at the University of British Columbia, understanding the nature of the injury I had, I would not be able to play the position that I played, which God had gifted me in. And I knew at that moment I was in trouble because the first thoughts that went through my mind in my little silver Pontiac car that had one blue door because it got busted up and I had to go to the junkyard and get it replaced. And I remember driving home, and here's the thoughts that went through the mind of a follower of Jesus Christ. Wow, how is this going to affect my friendships? Anyone want to gonna hang out with me? Anyone want to be around me? Because if I'm not a national rugby player heading to the World Cup, then what value do I really have? And at that moment, God whispered in my ear, 
you have found your identity, your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your security and significance in the idol of rugby. And what was interesting is the pastor I was speaking with this week was dealing with an idol in the same kind of area. And I was able to share with him by God's grace through my experience where God shone his convicting light on me that the only way I'm able to be victorious over making that an idol now is because he revealed that to me. I confessed it and I recognized how wrong I was. You see, idols will lie to you. They will say to you, if you have X, then you will have Y. Jesus is our all in all. So in answering the question, what does modern-day idolatry look like, the starting point to remember is not in what it looks like, rather to remember it's an issue of our hearts. And once we have that settled, yes, then we should begin to identify the variety of things we pursue other than God with greater affection and zeal in a wrong way. And I thought since we are a family here this morning, what better way to help us identify some of the modern-day idols we bow to and worship than to use the backdrop from a familiar game, the family feud. Now, because of time, I'm not going to get you to yell out answers, but as I, go, as I read a number of articles this week related to this topic, I compiled a list of some of the most common idols that appeared in all the different articles I was reading. Things that take God's place in our lives in giving us fulfillment, satisfaction, security, and significance. And as I go through this list, I want you in your own mind, keep a scorecard. See how many of these you would have guessed and said, yep, I got it. First idol, number one, work. Success. Money. Image. Consumerism, family, entertainment, recreation, and sports. This is not an exhaustive list. Even yesterday, the Lord was bringing other things to my mind. But this gives you a good idea of the variety of forms of idols that we battle in our context here in Durham region. These are not necessarily bad things, but good things that have been given the wrong priority. Other than consumerism, I can't see wherever consumerism is a good thing unless you're gaining to give it away, then yes. Paul Tripp rightly says of these, work is not a bad thing, but work is a terrible God. Success is not a bad thing, but success is a terrible God. Family is not a bad thing, but family is a terrible God. These things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when we prioritize them in our lives in a wrong way, then they become a terrible God. When we take a good thing and make it a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. When we take a good thing, work, and make it a God thing. This is where I find my identity. This is where my significance. This is where I feel value. This is where I find security, satisfaction, and work. We make it a God thing, small g, work becomes a bad thing. So the question is, how do we prevent a good thing from becoming a God thing? We must experience change and transformation in our idol factories. 
We must be transformed in our hearts where cravings and desires for satisfaction, security, and significance grow and flourish and ultimately influence our actions to pursue people or things other than God. But in order for transformation to take place in our idol factories, it first has to take place in our minds. Change and transformation has to begin in our minds and the way we think and look at things like work, success, money, image, family, entertainment, recreation, and sports. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we are encouraged, do not conform to the pattern of the world. What is the pattern of the world? Make work your God. Success, that's the only goal in life. Your image, absolutely. Do whatever you have to sacrifice to have the image that the culture says you should have. Yet God's word says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. We have to start to think and see things the way God does. A.W. Tozer says it so well. The danger of idolatry is not found in simply the things we can hold and label as idols. Idols are conceived deep in the human souls, evolving in the mind and poisoning the will long before they are evidenced in behavior or objects. That's why I wanted to make the point this morning, don't get stuck on the image of the idol. you got to go deeper. It's underlying that. It's our desires, our cravings that are birthed and flourish in our hearts and affect our behavior. So just as in the previous weeks, whether we've been dealing on about questions related to marriage, whether we've been looking at questions related to sexuality, or this morning dealing with the topic of idolatry, we must continually come back to God's word. His word is to be our standard for truth that shapes the way we think, and our thinking influences the way we live related to idol worship. And there's no better place to go than where we started this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where God clearly, I mean, when I read that this morning, did any of you need to go to seminary to understand what God was saying to you this morning? He spoke so clearly and shared with his people his thoughts revealing his heart on the issues of having idols in our lives. The context of that text this morning, he had just powerfully rescued his people from slavery in the country of Egypt. He was guiding them. He was caring for them as he journeyed them towards this promised land that he had for them. And while camped in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai, God says to Moses, hey, Moses, I'm going to have a chat with you. And here's the deal. I'm going to have a chat with you, but I am going to come in a dense cloud But I will speak loud enough to you that the people will hear my conversation with you. And my purpose is so that they will trust you, Moses, as my chosen leader. And so that they will follow you. And so the people consecrated themselves in preparation for hearing from God. And the scripture says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 and 17, as a description of that moment. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And while they stood at the foot of the mountain, Aaron and Moses went up the mountain 
And in verse, tw- verse 1 of chapter 20, the scriptures say, And God spoke all these words. What is interesting to note is not just what God said to his people that morning regarding idols, but it is how God said it that I found very interesting. You see, had I not studied this a little deeper this week, I probably would not have picked up on the significance of how he addressed his people that day. He spoke to them in a manner. He followed a structure in his conversation which mirrored the treaties of how they were drawn up in that time in history. So the way what he said is absolutely important. But God, in his wisdom, even said it in a certain way that the people would understand because that is how the pattern of royal treaties were drawn up during that time in history. In those days, you see, treaties always began with the conquering king identifying himself. What does God say? I am the Lord your God. And then after the conquering king had identified himself, he would then give a historical record of his gracious acts. Listen, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So he identifies himself. He gives them a historical record of his gracious acts towards towards them even before he ever laid out the stipulations that were to be obeyed in the treaty or covenant that he was establishing with them. You see, God intentionally wanted his people that day in their minds and in their hearts to be convinced of the fact that he is now their king. And they were, as his covenant people, to render complete submission, allegiance, and obedience to him. Please note that their allegiance and obedience to God as his people then, and our allegiance and our obedience to God as his people today is to grow, to flourish, to deepen in the context of his grace. Before he ever laid out the stipulations, he reminded them of who he was and what he had done for them. And our obedience is to be driven as theirs was, to be driven out of an attitude of gratitude for his mercies. Unlike an earthly king who conquers his subjects by aggression and then demands external obedience, the Lord our God delivered his people then, and he delivers us now from slavery and oppression so we can share a life with him in which we can be transformed into his likeness. You see, he delivered them out of a land of slavery, But brothers and sisters, let us never forget, we too were all in a desperate situation and needed to be freed from slavery. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says. And I'm going to change the word from you to us or we. As for us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. When we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time. Listen. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace we have been saved. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 17, if you're not convinced yet. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves, though we used to be slaves to sin, we have come to obey from our heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed our allegiance. We have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. It is because of his redemptive work that God has the right to command our lives because of his redemptive work. So what did he command regarding idols? Three stipulations he gave in our text. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Before me literally means to my face. There's a difference, even though in God's eyes there isn't, there's a difference of impact when I say something about someone behind their back as opposed to when I say something to someone to their face. Have you not heard that in the playground? Oh, yeah? Come say that to my face. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods in my face. This phrase can also be used to refer to a husband who takes his second wife while his first wife is still alive. Unthinkable. Because God is our Redeemer and He has graciously brought us into a covenant relationship with Himself, we are not to grasp, we are not to cling to anyone or anything besides the Lord. No other love should take priority over Him. No other love should be placed alongside or substituted for Him. As our conquering King and Lord, He expects absolute, exclusive loyalty. And when we worship anything other than Him, it is nothing less than hatred in God's face. And I chose this topic when the list was brought out because I want you to know I struggle as an idolater every day. But God's word has so encouraged me this week to wake up. It's okay that you're in a battle. This is life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Until that day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and that will no longer be a temptation to our sinful nature to keep going back to things and worship them other than God. You shall have no other gods before me. Secondly, you shall not make for yourself idol factories. Idol factories. You're lying. We are lying to ourselves if we wake up and say, I don't make idols. Scripture says you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Why? Because he transcends everything. He is to have no rival. He alone is creator. He alone is our deliverer. He alone is our king. He alone is our sustainer. So when we have greater affections... Consumes my thoughts, consumes my schedule, consumes my treasure. When I have greater affections for something or someone other than God in a wrong way, I have made an idol. And as one author bluntly put it, to make God in the form of the world in our image is no different than to commit adultery with another lover. Thirdly, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. You see, the danger when we make these idols is we give them a level of 
adoration and allegiance and commitment that competes and often surpasses the adoration, allegiance, and commitment that is only deserving of the Lord our God. We begin to serve them, our time, our treasure, in a wrong way. And when we do that, we are in essence, don't lie to ourselves. God cannot be mocked. We are in essence worshiping those things or those people. At times, all of us are guilty of transferring the worship that is rightly deserving to only the Lord our God, our creator, to created things. Is that not what the Apostle Paul was referring to in Romans chapter 1? When he says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, didn't give him the right adoration, allegiance, commitment, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, listen, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So why shall we not do these things that our conquering king, our rescuer, our savior has asked us not to do? Because in verse 5, he declares, I, the Lord your God, Calvary Baptist Church, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. Unfortunately, today, jealousy has acquired a bad meaning. When I think of jealousy, I think of someone with a petty, self-serving attitude. Now, that is not the sense in which the word is used here to describe the character of our God. A better word or a better translation would be zealous. Zealous is a better translation of how God is describing himself to his people. His love. Listen to this. This is why I'm so thankful I'm a child of God by his grace. His love for us is exclusive. He is passionate towards us. He is devoted towards us. He is committed towards us. He is dedicated towards us. As Alan Cole wrote, more than just an emotion, it is an action that springs up from having a personal bond with another as exclusive as that of a marriage bond. No husband who truly loved his wife could endure to share her with another man. No more will God share his people with a rival. He loves us. He is zealous for you. He fights for you. He will defend you because he loves you. Lest we forget, we are not our own. We are not our own. In 1 Corinthians, we are instructed that we have been bought with a costly price. You see, God's zeal does two things. Number one, it demands our exclusive devotion to him, and it delivers judgment on anything in our lives that oppose him. God's passion, his commitment towards us demands our exclusive devotion to him. He deserves our deepest, strongest affections and admiration because he loves us. And he fights for us. 
And that was so powerfully demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ, was it not? He wants us to discover that we will find our greatest joy when he becomes our greatest treasure. We will find our greatest joy when he becomes our greatest treasure. And brothers and sisters, I stand here as one of your brothers in the Lord and say I'm constantly pursuing to make sure that he is my greatest joy. John Piper states, the germination of all idolatry is rooted in a diluted understanding of God. That's why I said we've got to get first, don't look at the form, don't look at what it is. We've got to get to our heart, but our hearts first have to change by being renewed in the mind. The germination of all idolatry is rooted in a diluted understanding of God. We undervalue his worthiness. We dismiss his holiness. We disregard his love. We dilute his truth and forget his jealousy. God does not want to be offended, and he doesn't want us to destroy our lives. And idolatry does both of those things. And so his wrath comes upon the idolater because he is zealous for us, and he loves us. That is why he delivers judgment on anything in our lives that oppose him. What we facilitate, God will not tolerate whenever we replace him from his rightful place in our lives for another. How does he describe people who have that common pattern? As those who hate me. Rejection of loyalty to the covenant Lord. Thank God, although he is patient and gracious with us, he does not take our unfaithfulness lightly. And there can be far-reaching implications if left unchecked. What did verse 5 say? Because he is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Just so you know and are clear on this, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, Scripture clearly teaches us that no one is condemned for any guilt but their own. What is not implied here is that children are held accountable for the sins of their parents. What is implied here is when we are idol worshipers, our children may experience the negative consequences of my choice to not destroy the idols in my life. Children of idol worshipers potentially have a harder time understanding and accepting God's standard of truth and his expectations of his kingdom citizens. Parents, and I'm speaking to myself here, we need to not only guard our own lives, but we also need to guard our homes and stay vigilant to make sure our kids are not growing up in idol factories. What consumes your thoughts in your home? What consumes your schedule in your home? What consumes your treasure in your home? May God help us. So his zeal for us demands our exclusive devotion to him. And his zeal for us delivers judgment on anything in our lives that oppose him. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us and he is zealous for us. On the flip side in verse 6, he longs to show love. Not just to one, three, four generations, to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commands in the treaty language of ancient near east the love owed to the great king was a conventional term for total allegiance and implicit trust 
expressing itself in obedience. When it says those who love me and keep my commands, love is when we have total allegiance for our conquering king, implicit trust in him expressed through obedient living. Not obedience motivated by a wish to avoid punishment, like in a covenant made between an earthly king and his subjects, but rather we do what God wants because he loves us. He is zealous for us. And when we don't do what he wants, it's probably because we are in fact consenting with other lovers. Money, success, work, image, consumerism, family, entertainment, recreation, sports. And when we pursue and consent other lovers, may we not be surprised when God's heart is broken and his discipline is lovingly turned towards us because he loves us. A loving father will instruct their children when they're going in the wrong way. He is zealous for us. So when we talk about what modern-day idolatry looks like, God has clearly drawn his line in the sand. His standard on idol worship has been established. He has given us ample warning regarding the danger of giving ourselves to anything else in a wrong way other than himself because he is zealous for us. What we facilitate, God will not tolerate. Now only one question remains for each of us to answer. Will we this morning confess to the Lord our God the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth regarding the idols in our lives. Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. Oh, I'm so thankful you're zealous for us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that it breaks your heart when we commit adultery by pursuing other lovers. God, I ask that you will do a mighty work in our hearts this morning. Wake us up. That we might experience that incredible, lavish love that you long to pour out on us. We love you, God. You are our Lord and our God. And you have rescued us from slavery. We accept your commands. Help us to be obedient, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week as we head out, we've just sung that Jesus is our life. How are we going to continue to fight the battle plan? At the bottom of the notes in your bulletin is the word idol. Here's the battle plan that I came up with. I identify the things or people in your life that you give greater affection to than God and recognize the danger that they can become to yourself and others. D, destroy and replace them. One of the first things God always instructed his people to do after he had given them victory over their enemies was to destroy the idols and the foreign gods in those cities so their hearts, so that their idol factories would not turn from the Lord but rather be yielded and obedient to him. Tim Keller says, if we do not replace an idol with the gospel, another idol will grow. So keep going back to God's word. Idols come easy, but go hard. Oh, obey the Lord, our God. 
Obey the Lord our God. He is our king. We are citizens in his kingdom only by his grace. So let's stop walking around carelessly offending him and destroying our lives and our relationships with him and with others. And finally, L, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because he is zealous for you and he has rescued you. I found it interesting that the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with this vital issue. And then the greatest commandment Jesus said to the teacher of the law that day is our best weapon against it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God promises through the power of Jesus. We can be victorious over our sinful desires and find meaning and joy in Jesus Christ where other things will only fail us in trying to provide that. And as the Apostle John wrote his final words in the book of 1 John, Dear children, let us keep ourselves from idols. May God help us. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.